Please turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Now, before you think, did he just choose this passage trying to pick something relevant for New Year's Eve or your New Year's Eve resolution? No, I didn't. Um, with the exception of Advent here at this church, we have been, we work through books of the Bible. And so Eric has been working through the Gospel of Mark. And every time I'm before you, I, I pick back up where we left off in Colossians. So I didn't choose this passage. This is just where we left off from the last time we were in Colossians. But I have to admit, this is kind of the perfect New Year's Eve text to be considering. Because what happens around this time every year? We, we all start to engage in a little bit of honest self-reflection, self-assessment. You want the 2024 you to be new and improved. New year, new you, right? You cut out sweets and you add in a gym membership. You cut out TV and you add in some reading. You cut out social media and you add in an online master's degree. All good things. But for most of us, unless you're a Navy SEAL... By the time February hits, we're back in our old ways. Why? Well, there really is an old you that really does like sweets and TV and uh, social media all at the same time. And so though you have a nice vision of the new you, you encounter real pushback from the old you. And we realize it takes hard work. To re- and, and hard work and resolve to set a new pattern in our lives. And so we come to our text this morning and we see the same principle is at play with this young church in Colossae. Paul has been exhorting this church to live out, live out of their new status in Jesus Christ, to bring their earthly lives into harmony with the truth of who they already are in Jesus Christ. But... The very minute you endeavor to do that, you encounter resistance from the old you. You want to follow Christ, but you take a few steps and fall flat on your face. What are we to do? Well, Paul in this section focuses on that battle between the old and new you. And he shows us what strategy we are to adopt and where we're to get the power to implement it. So let's read our text together. Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is God's word. Let us pray as we consider it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we pray that it would be a light to our lives, that in your goodness that you would show us the depths of our sin, and that you would not leave us there in despair, but you would show us the beauty 
of your Savior and the great help that we have in your Spirit. Come now and help us to see you more and know your Son more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about once a year, this happens to me. My closet gets so cluttered that I have to purge it. And so I'm, I'm throwing things away in the closet, and then I come across an old pair of jeans. And in my head, I, I know these jeans are old. I know they're worn out. You know, I know they're probably not going to come back in style. But as I reach out to take it and to purge it and to throw it away, suddenly a pain strikes my heart. Throw these away? I love these jeans. Maybe, you know, maybe I still have some use in them. Maybe they will come back in style. And so instead of throwing them away, I keep them. And this is kind of the problem of the human heart and, and sin in our human hearts. We agree that things get bad, things get a little cluttered, things get messed up, and we need a purge. We need to cut some things out of our lives. But when it comes down to chunking these things out of our lives, we say, whoa, Paul, like kill sin? Isn't that a little drastic? You know what? I'll, I'll just, I'll control my sin. I'll, I'll manage my sin over here, but kill it? You see, I can't put my genes to death like I know I should because deep down I still love the genes. And in the same way, we don't put sin to death in our lives because deep down we still love it. It'd be painful to part with it. We need help. Well, for me and my closet, help comes in the form of my wife, Mackenzie. She sees the genes and says, those need to be burned. Um, <laughs> These can't even go into the goodwill pile. They need to go straight to the trash. So, I say ouch. Um, but because her opinion has such great significance to me, and because I know she's trying to help me, I can with new power throw these genes away, even as it pains me to do that. Well, this is the exact same process of what it's like to put remaining sin to death in your life. When we try to kill it, we actually discover just how much we love it. And only by the help of the Spirit of Christ can we have hearts that are transformed so that we care about his opinion more than ours. It, it bears greater significance in our lives. And he enables us with new power to put to death the things that he hates. And so the main point we want to consider in our time together this morning is if Christ has made you new... Put off the old. If Christ has made you new, put off the old. Paul's basically saying, you don't need those old clothes. Don't go back to them. Put them off. Put them away. Throw them away. Because you have new ones in Jesus Christ. So we're going to follow along with our text this morning and notice three things that Paul wants us to grasp in order to help us put off our old self and put on the new. We need to first look at the task and then the terrain and then the theme. So first, let's consider the task. Look with me in verse 5 again. Paul begins by saying, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The task that Paul is clearly calling Christians to is, is, is clear. He says Christians are to put their old sinful ways to death. That means if you belong to Christ, you are to actively and perpetually kill remaining sin in your life. 
So the, the Puritan John Owens uh, wrote a book that's called The Mortification of Sin. Um, I recommend it to you. Um, and his famous quote from that book is this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We are to be busy killing sin because it is always busy trying to wage war against us. And so I've been using this term remaining sin because if you're a believer in Christ, the truth about you is you've been translated from one state of being to another. That is, before you knew Christ and his salvation, you were enslaved to sin. Sin was your boss. Sin was the president and you were the resident. But when the grace of God came into your life... Paul says back in chapter 1, verse 13, that that you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to to the kingdom of his beloved son. And so Jesus, according to that, didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He didn't wait for you to overcome your sin and show progress in overcoming sin. He busted in while you were still a sinner, while you were still captive to sin, and he beat up the bad guys. He dethroned sin in your life. And he's transferred you to a new kingdom. So for you, if you're a Christian, you're, you're no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer the president. Christ is. But sin is still resident. You still have remaining sin within you that doesn't like the new system. But the good news is that, is that now you have power. You have the power and the ability to resist sin. You're no longer enslaved to it. You can certainly still fall to sin, but you have a new ability in Christ to stand against it. So a couple of quick implications from that. The first one is if you're not a Christian, the Bible is clearly saying to you that you don't have a shot at putting sin to death apart from Christ. You don't stand a chance. It's too powerful for you. You need a strong redeemer. You need Jesus Christ. And and the good news of the Bible is that he's accessible to you today. Like, why waste any more time? Like, receive him by faith. Open the door and let him in. He's, he's offering that to you today. And the second thing, the implication is, if you are a Christian, you have to recognize that you live in a paradox. The paradox called the already but not yet. Back in verse 3 of the same chapter, Paul says that you have already died with Christ. You're, you've already died. Your life is hid with Christ in God, you're, you're already set free from the penalty of sin because of the cross. And now you're becoming increasingly free from the power of sin in your life. But you're not yet set free from the presence of sin while you're here, as long as you're here on earth and in this body. So Paul's saying this, this paradox, you've already died and been raised with Christ, yet you still have remaining sin in you that you need to actively and perpetually kill and put to death. So notice in verse 5, that verb is in the active voice. It's, it's not passive. Paul doesn't say, you know, just sit back and wait for the Spirit, and whenever he motivates you to put sin to death, that's, you know, go and do it. That's great. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you be killing sin now. In the Civil War, um, President Abraham Lincoln was famous for being frustrated with his Union generals early on in the war, Um, and he fired a lot of them uh, because they were all passive. 
They're all complaining about this or that and not taking the offensive. But then Ulysses S. Grant stepped onto the scene and caught Lincoln's attention. And Lincoln said of him, I like Grant. He fights. Grant didn't wait and so allow the enemy to organize and dictate the pace. He took the offensive, and that's what turned the tide in in that war. And so perhaps the reason you're not doing so well in your fight against remaining sin is because you're assuming passivity. You're waiting around allowing the enemy to organize when you've been called to fight. So, fight. Obviously, not out of your own strength, but out of the strength that God gives. He counsels us to make use of his, all the means of grace that he gives to us. Make use of his word. Take up his word. Take up prayer. Take up Christian fellowship and community. Use those free things that he gives to strengthen your faith and to weaken your desires to sin. So, the task is active and it's also perpetual. This, meaning this side of heaven, the war is always on. You're never in a spot where you can declare victory and take a break. You, you always have remaining sin in you to put to death. Um, I heard a story about a man who was celebrating in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous his 40th year of sobriety. Um, huge accomplishment. People celebrated him. Um, but one person asked him, like, you know, he kept going to the meetings after that, even after 40 years. And like, why are you still coming to this? I mean, like 40 years, like, can't you say you're victorious over this sin now? And his reply, I think, was, was so humble and so wise. He said, you know, I'm always 15 minutes away from being absolutely intoxicated. So you see, he knew that he was in a fight to the end. He knew that the minute he dropped his guard... The minute he declared a victory and took off his armor, that he'd be vulnerable. He knew his own sinful heart well, and he knew that he had to be busy killing sin or he'd be busy killing him. So let me ask you, are you actively putting sin to death in your life? When was the last time you examined your life, looked for sin, and sought to kill it? And where perhaps in your heart, are you compromising with your sin instead of putting it to death? So Paul has been very clear so far about the task that we're called to, but he also helps us by understanding, helping us understand the terrain of our hearts. That brings us to the second point, the terrain. So to help us understand the terrain of our hearts better, he gives us two lists in verse 5 and verse 8. They're, they're lists of vices lists of sins. And the first list reveals the depth of our sin, whereas the second list reveals the defensiveness of our sin. And so we'll look at those two in turn. So first, uh, in verse 5, the depth of our sin. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What is that? Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So notice what Paul does with this list. He goes from the external, and he works his way into the internal. He goes from the fruit, you know, what you see on the outside, and he works his way down to the root. 
He works from the tip of the iceberg, what you see, to what's underneath, what you can't see. He goes from sexual immorality to covetousness to idolatry. And so by including these external sins, Paul is saying that God really does care about the external. He really does care about what we do with our bodies. And that these sins, these external sins, especially sexual sins, always wound. They're always destructive. They always mar the good things that God loves. And so his command is to kill it. But this list also shows us that if our strategy just stops at the fruit, it just, if it just stops at the external, it's the equivalent of just chopping off the fruit. Like It'll just grow back. You have to trace it back to the root. So Paul does this by going on in his list, and we see that he drops down from the external to the desire level. He throws out that word evil desire, which in the Greek means over-desire. It's an inordinate desire. It's a desire that's gone beyond its bounds and is running the show. And so sexual desire is good in its right context, in its God-given context of, of marriage between one man and one woman. But if it leaves its God-given boundaries, that over-desire, it becomes an over-desire. It becomes a monster. And so sin, Paul wants us to see, is never just a physical act. It's always driven, being driven by an over-desire, an inordinate desire. But Paul goes even further when he says it's covetousness. It's greed. It's, it's, a, it's a lack of trust in God. It's, it's not being satisfied with what God has given you, but it's wanting what, what you want when you want it. It's not resting in God as your good father who gives you what you need. And so in, in covetousness, in greed, you reach out and you take it, whatever it is that you over-desire. But there's one more level to the depth that, that Paul goes to to get at the very root of all sin, and it's idolatry. Paul's saying that every sin at its deepest level is turning from God and worshiping something else. In your idolatry, you're deifying something else and looking to it for your life. You look to it, you look to a relationship, a promotion, whatever it is, to redeem your life and give it meaning. And that, that idol, whatever it is, flows to greed. And that, that flows to over-desire, to passion, to the physical manifestations of evil. So Paul is trying to get us to see you'll never put sin to death unless you trace it back to the idols of your heart. That unless you ask yourself, what, what is the sin underneath the sin? You'll never get at, its, get at its root. It'll just keep growing back. But just merely identifying the idols of your heart, even that isn't enough. Paul includes verse 6 to say, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Basically saying, you won't kill sin unless you hate it, unless you abhor it, unless you see it from God's perspective that it provokes God's wrath. Now, you know, wrath um, is not an attribute of God. Um, it's not that God is just, you know, his natural state is just cranky, looking for something to be angry at and wrathful towards. No, it, his wrath is a function of his holiness. It's a function of his love and his goodness. 
So the presence of sin is so evil that it evokes his wrath because sin is always destroying its host. Sin is always destroying others. It's marring the good things that God made. It's it's destroying the things that God loves. And so he is utterly opposed to it and will ultimately undo it. Yet through his son, he provided a way that we ourselves are not destroyed by his wrath, by his son taking on our wrath on the cross. So if that's an infinitely wise and holy and loving God's response to the wickedness of sin, then we should never befriend it. We should abhor it and then so put it to death. So that's, that's what the first list is showing. It's showing us the depth of our sin. And the second list that's in verse 8 is showing us the, def- the defensiveness of our sin. So look with me in verse 8. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So this list is kind of like the opposite. It, it goes from internal to external. It goes from your heart to your mouth. Kind of echoing what Jesus said in the Gospels when he says, out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks. So anger brews inside and forms evil intentions of malice, overflowing to slander and abusive speech, which tears others down. And so Paul says, put these all away. Lay them aside. Put them off like a garment. And so that phrase is not just a a throwaway phrase by Paul, just like he's just kind of searching for synonyms to say, hey, just, you know, put your sin away. It's actually very precise. He says, it's it's like clothing. Take it off. Be be done with it. Throw it away. Because you realize this about clothing. What happens when you put clothing on? You're covering. You're, you're covering nakedness, vulnerability, and shame. And Paul is saying, do not put on these old clothes of anger, of slander, to cover yourself, to cover your sense of shame, your sense of vulnerability. These clothes aren't fitting for you anymore based on who you now are in Christ. So think about this. Do you recognize this about anger, the first thing on the list? Um, Dr. John Cox is a Christian psychiatrist who says this, that anger is normally, the first, or is normally not the first thing that you feel. It's normally the second thing that you feel. So what's he mean by that? that the first thing you feel is normally vulnerability, weakness, shame. And then anger is the second thing you feel because anger comes in as a defense mechanism to protect you. It rushes in as a shield to protect your vulnerable self. So you feel weak. That's the first thing. And so your old self's muscle memory is to put on anger. Or think about slander. It too is something that we put on and take up out of our own insecurity. We bring others down with our words. Why? Well, it's to make ourselves feel better about who we are. Or what about lying that's mentioned in verse 9? Paul says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. Why do we lie? We lie because we want to control the narrative. We don't want our vulnerable and broken self to be seen and possibly rejected, so we twist the truth 
in our favor. We, we project a false version of ourselves to others. But it's all fig leaves. It's, they're all attempts to cover up our shame and vulnerability. It's our old self's default mode of trying to cover. But Paul says, now you must put them all away. You must not wear these old clothes anymore. You must wear clothes that fit who you are in Christ. So instead of lying, in Christ you can own your flaws before others. Because you know that you're clothed, accepted, declared right in Christ. You don't have to control how others see you. And a Christian, therefore, is someone who can confess sin, who can ask for forgiveness when they're in the wrong, because you know you're covered in Christ's righteousness. Or instead of taking up anger, you don't have to defend yourself anymore. As we read in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, in the assurance of pardon, Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense attorney. He's our defense. He's our righteousness. He's our shield. So instead of reaching for your old clothes of anger, wrath, malice, train your heart to reach for Christ who has covered you and will cover you. So that's, that's the difficult terrain of our hearts that we have to understand if we're going to carry out the task. Um, but how, where are we to find the power to do this, to put sin to death? That brings us to our last point, the theme. The theme of the Christian life, the theme of our song, and the secret to killing the old and raising to life the new is found in, that, in the last part of that phrase in verse 11. Christ is all and in all. Commentators agree that this is the theme of the entire letter of the, the letter of Colossians. And it reaches a high point here in this verse. So you could say everything that Paul has wanted to communicate to the Colossians, he's communicating it right there in that phrase. So you remember the context of this letter. Uh, the church in Colossae is being troubled by false teaching. These false teachers have come in and they've suggested that perhaps the reason for all their struggles with sin was due to the fact that they were only looking to Jesus. And they're saying, you know, to progress further, greater spiritual you know, maturity or greater power, uh, you needed to look beyond Jesus and implement their philosophy, their practices of fasting and asceticism and Jewish ceremonies and other things like that. And they said, do that, and then you'll be awesome like us. You'll have all spiritual fullness you need. But Paul has been refuting this all along in the letter, basically saying, no. If Christ is the second person of the Trinity, if he's God the creator and sustainer of all things, and if he's the one who's undertaken your salvation and accomplished it, then you have all you need in Christ. You don't need anything else. Christ is all, meaning he's all that matters for salvation. But Paul adds another phrase, Christ is all and in all. And by that phrase, he's meaning Jesus Christ is pleased to dwell in all types of people, in all types of sinners. That's why Paul says, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The false teachers, because they taught that salvation to some degree 
was dependent on you, that opened the door to a hierarchical system where Jews could look down on Greeks and say, you know, God loves us more. Or those who were circumcised could say to those who weren't, you know, we're, I think God likes us more. Or the educated, more philosophical Greeks could look down on barbarians and Scythians who still lived in tents and were uneducated and say, we're better than you. Or the free people could look down on the slaves and say, we're, we're better than you. But in the gospel, Jesus makes no distinction based on race, ceremony, culture, or social status. Jesus Christ is all and in all, meaning the ground is level at the foot of the cross because we're all equally helpless in our sin. And apart from Christ, we have no hope. And he's the savior of all who come to him without distinction. So no one can boast in anything in and of themselves. All our boast is in Christ, in his cross. He's all and in all. But how is this theme the key to overcoming sin in your life? You have to see that Jesus defeats remaining sin in your life by moving in. Earlier this year, I saw an article about how a handyman, handyman named Flash, uh, became the top consultant in his field. It's a new field that's kind of growing. It's removing squatters from your property. Um, squatters, if you don't know, are people who see a vacant house and go in and live, live in it. So you think it would be an easy fix to, to fix a squatter problem, but actually there's some certain states that have old laws that make it really difficult. So you would call the police and they would say, actually there's people living there, there's nothing we can do. Um, you'll have to go through the court system to resolve this which could take up to six months, all the while the squatters are still living in the vacant house. Well, this happened to Flash's mother. She was getting ready to move out of her house and to sell her house in California, and squatters moved in. So this was Flash's solution to the problem. He got his mom to write a lease that made him the legal tenant of the property. Then he loaded his car packed up his things, got his dog, and just moved in. And he immediately started putting up, you know, security cameras inside, outside. Um, and when he finally encountered the squatters, he said, look, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm the rightful owner, and I'm living here. And he calmly but firmly made their living situation unbearable. Like they'd go outside and he'd lock the door. And he'd start putting all their stuff out in the driveway. He started making himself annoying to them. Um, so much so that they fi he finally displaced them. So he displaced these squatters, got them to move out by him moving in, by showing that he had more resolve to live there than they did. Well, Flash's strategy is, the, Jesus Christ's strategy is the same as Flash's. In your sin, you were a condemned house. That's what the, story, the whole story of the Bible tells us. You were a condemned house falling apart. But on the cross, Jesus Christ purchased you back, taking all the wrath of God for your sin on himself so that the moment you believe in him, he applies that payment 
to your heart, and he moves in as the rightful owner. But your remaining sin is still living there like squatters. But Jesus' strategy is he moves in anyway, and he makes their experience so miserable that slowly but surely they leave and give up ground. So Jesus proves that he has way more resolve than your sin does. He has way more resolve than the squatters do. I mean, really, like consider the gospel. He, he's already left heaven to come to earth. He's taken on flesh, all that he might go to the cross and take your place there and die your death there. And he is raised to life and has all authority in heaven and on earth. Sin and death cannot resist him. And so it's in his great love and great tenderness that he moves in with you. So because he is all and in all, you have all the resources you need to put remaining sin to death. So if, if the one who defeated sin and death lives in you, then you know the penalty for sin is done away with. The power of sin is being weakened day by day as he renews us. And one day, you, along with all believers, will be free from the presence of sin in the new heavens and the new earth. If Christ has made you new, put off the old. Let's pray.